0: it is good to be back with you. It's gone for a little bit. We had a family vacation. Um, although I've been trying to spread the rumor that the deacons benched me for a while after that Ehud sermon a few weeks ago. So, but I have to say again, there's just some things in the book of Judges. There's some interesting details uh, that we hit on and hey, it's it's in the word of God and that's uh, this is how it is. You can't blame me for all of this. And even last week, you heard from Pastor Nick, and he talked about the story of uh, Barak and Deborah and J.L. And uh, remember in there how the, the evil commander, uh, um, Sisera, what happened to him at the end and how he was, he was taken out by J.L. as he was laying on the ground and uh, she impaled him. Uh, you know, he wasn't expecting that at all. You know what I think the last thing that went through his mind? A tent peg. <laughs> Let me ask you this. If This series on Judges, I don't know, do you find this encouraging? I actually find the book of Judges encouraging. But here's the thing. It all depends on where we're looking. Because as we look in the book of Judges, if our focus is exclusively on the human character's it's going to stay hard to be encouraged because we see, we see some good things. We're going to see some great things from Gideon today, but we see a lot of bad examples and uh, things that are just going to keep getting uh, worse and worse. Even in these leaders, they have huge flaws as well. But if our focus isn't merely on them, but it's on the main character in the book of Judges, God, then, wow, we have every reason to be encouraged because what we see is a God that is faithful, faithful, faithful. Uh, Even in the midst of his people turning away from him, we see a God of great love and grace and compassion. And even when he chastises them, it's for their good and it's out of his love and, and his mercy. And because we are fallen individuals as well, And that's no excuse for it, but that's who we are. That is the kind of God that that we need. And there's so many examples in here about how to make our way in this fallen world that we live in as well. So we are in Judges chapter 6 today. We're going to be going through uh, the first 32 verses here. This is the beginning of a three-part mini-series on the character of Gideon. And Gideon actually receives more verses in the book of Judges than, than anyone else. Samson, now he gets, he gets more chapters, uh, but Gideon gets 100 verses, if you count it that way, where Samson gets 96. And there might be some stories uh, from Gideon that maybe are more familiar to us than others. Sometimes we think of uh, Gideon, and he's the one that, that puts out the fleece uh, to try and discern the will of God. And we're going to be talking about that next week and talking about, is that, a, is that the way that we should go about trying to find God's will? Is that an example to be followed? And there's also the story that uh, Gideon, where he has his army and it's too large for God to defeat with and he has to whittle that down and he has uh, the men go by the, by, um, by the water and based on how they drink, uh, he takes some and leaves others. So some great stuff next week. But I think there's some other parts of uh, Gideon's story that we don't talk about as much, and we're going to hit some of those uh, today, and I think, um, and and then in two weeks as well, and we're going to see just the character of Gideon and what he was like. I think his real lack of courage, especially at the beginning, and how God worked in his life to to develop courage in him and to strengthen him. So I look forward to this as we dive in. So if you have your scripture, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Judges, uh, chapter 6. We're going to take the first 10 verses, and I'll read a little. We'll talk about it. We'll read a little more and talk about that. But our first main point uh, for this section is that God convicts Israel for fearing other gods. We're going to see that's what what happens here. I'll tell you, you ever feel like you just can't get ahead? Like every time you try to... you gained something, you've built something, you've developed something, and it just kind of gets taken away or taken off the table. Maybe you've saved up a little bit of money, and then the car goes out, or who knows what it is. And these people are definitely feeling it that way. This was uh, the oppression that they were experiencing is uh, very well described in here, and how the uh, Midians uh, were oppressing them and, and taking away their food, their their liveliness, the, and how hard it was for them to survive. So let's read here, starting verse uh, 1 in chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how it's starting out. This is the pattern again. Doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian, this other nation, for seven years. So this is what's going on for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So they're having to hide out in dens and in caves, and we're going to see why that's the case. Verse 3, For whenever the Israelites planted crops, which is what you need to do, they don't have myers to, to go and get their food, they have to grow it, and they would, whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites... And the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. It's the worst oppression they had yet. And it describes the Midians, these people, almost as human locusts coming in. I know we have some kids here. I don't know, kids, how many of you have seen, remember seeing the movie Bugs Life? You know, and they have to raise their crops and have this. And these locust people, you know, they come in and grasshoppers and they take their stuff away and they don't have things to live on. And this is a real-life version of this. And these people were left. They had to do all this hard work, and it would just get taken away from them. And they're, they're hungry. They had nothing to eat. They had to hide away what they had and try and hide it in, in caves from these marauders doing evil to them. So they were, they were miserable. Thankfully, God is not absent in our misery. They were, these people, they were oppressed, but they were not orphaned. And it says they cried out to the Lord in their misery. And we'd expect at this point that the Lord, it goes on and says, he, he sends them a judge. He sends them a conqueror. But we'll see, no, he sends them somebody else first. He's going to, he's going to send them a, a prophet. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midians, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Again, they might have expected, well, this is where God sends the judge, one of these military leaders, and he's going to throw off the oppressor. But he sends a prophet first. Let you think, why does, why does he do that? I think it's because Yahweh sends a prophet, one that, that speaks God's word, God's truth, because Israel needs something more than just immediate relief. They need to understand why this is happening, why they're being oppressed. That it's because... They're doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And before we can appreciate the rescue that's going to come, we need to understand why we need rescuing. So we continue reading, And the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he reminds them of of God's faithfulness in the past and what he's done for them. I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppress you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said, gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now it says there that they they didn't, they were not to fear the gods of the Amorites. I don't take that in the sense of being afraid of them. I think it's in the sense of we're, we're supposed to fear the Lord, to have proper respect and, and care about uh, the Lord, the, the true God, and respecting him. But instead, they were, they were fearing and worshiping and obeying these false gods that were in the land. And so this was the core of their sin, that these people were, they were addicted to evil and they were in love with idolatry that they had absorbed from the people that were around them. I think one of the principles we can get out of this is that God isn't interested in just dealing with the symptoms of our problem. And sometimes that's what we want. We're miserable because of a circumstance and we want to go to God and we say, Take away my misery. Take away uh, the, the pain that I'm going through. And we, we want some kind of just a, a band aid put on. We want just the, the immediate relief. But God loves us enough to not just do that. That He is interested in what is the root of the problem? What is causing this? What is it, in, in, oftentimes, in our hearts and our lives? that is contributing to, to the, the oppression and the, uh, the, the pain and the circumstances we feel. Now, let me be clear. This does not mean that every time that you go through a hardship or a sickness or an illness, it's because of something specific that you've done wrong. That's, that's not what this is saying here. But there are times where what we're going through is because we've brought something on ourselves because of our action and because of our lifestyle. And God needs us to realize that. And no matter what, God is always working in our hearts to, to help us to see our need for him and, and the sin that's in there so we can get rid of that, and he can make us more into the people that he has created us to be. So he isn't just treating the symptoms, because that ultimately that wouldn't help. That would be like if you're, if you're, you're, your kid was... Uh, suffering from from poison ivy and you were putting calamine lotion on them but letting them still roll around in the poison ivy. You gotta you gotta come out of the poison ivy and then it can be can be dealt with. So God had been faithful to to them, but they unfortunately had not been faithful to him. And we need to remember God is God is not like a permissive parent. You know, we don't think that's good even with human parents. For, you know, permissive parents, they just let the kids get away with everything and bail them out of everything. And we wouldn't expect God to be like that. In Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, you can jot that down and look it up a different time, but there it teaches that God is like a good father. And like a good father, he, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Not out of uh, punishment, but out of to, to bring us back on track. Charles Spurgeon once said, "The Lord does not permit His children to sin successfully." So chastising us, it's been said, is, is evidence of, of God's hatred for sin, but it's also evidence of His love for His people. I think another point that we need to get out of this is to realize that regret is not the same thing as repentance. Because these people, they were crying out to God. They were crying out to him for relief, but the words that were used here and how it's said, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were, they were actually repenting of their sins. I mean, that's why God had to send this prophet to tell them, you guys realize the reason you're miserable, there's reasons for this. See, so we can cry out for relief, but regretting something, regretting the, the consequences of our choices, regretting the, the pain that it's caused, but well, that doesn't take a work of God in our heart. I mean, anyone can, be, uh, can regret consequences. Anyone can feel bad about getting in a miserable situation that we're stuck in. But is our focus on just the misery that we have because of the consequences, or is it realizing that I have I've sinned against a holy God? I have done what, what is wrong in his sight, and, and grieving for that genuinely, not worrying about just the consequences, but the main thing is because we, we fear the Lord, that we, we don't want to go against him. We, want, we love him so much because of his faithfulness that we want to be trying our best to, to obey him and to follow his ways. So just mere regret is not the same thing as repentance. Regret does not require grace, but repentance Does. Well, let's keep moving. So this is the situation they're in. They're being oppressed. In the second section, we're going to summarize this is God calls Gideon to action. So we're going to see Gideon's out, mining his own business here, and the angel of the Lord comes to him. Verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Ibrazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midians. Okay, so first of all, we have this character, the Angel of the Lord, and this is the third time that the Angel of the Lord is showing up in the Book of Judges. And what we've said is when you see not just an Angel of the Lord, but the Angel of the Lord, that this is not just an angel. This is not just a mere messenger. That this actually is the Lord Himself. And at first, Gideon doesn't necessarily realize this, but at the end, you're going to see that he does. And the, it changes from saying it's just the angel to the Lord. You're going to see this as we work through the passage. So I believe this is actually a, a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, the one who is Jesus Christ. Uh, but this is before he took on actual human uh, you know, flesh, so he was appearing here in the Old Testament uh, to, to Gideon. And so Gideon, what's he doing at the time? He's, he's hiding, trying to, uh, to beat out the wheat in a wine press. And you don't normally do that. I'm not a, an expert either in wine presses or in uh, beating out wheat. But the way that they would uh, thrash their wheat, they'd take it and they'd throw it up in the air and the chaff would blow off and the grain would fall to the ground. That works a whole lot better if you can do it somewhere that's out in the open, maybe on top of a nice little hill, a nice breeze or wind coming through to blow the stuff off and for the grain to fall to the ground. It's going to work a lot tougher if you're in like a, a dugout wine press where you don't have that airflow. But he's doing that because he's trying to hide from the Midianites because otherwise they come and they just take their stuff. And he's, he's, he's sick and tired of this after being oppressed like this for, for seven years, trying most of your effort going to someone else and being taken away unfairly and trying to keep something that you can live on. So the angel of the Lord appears to him, verse 12, and says, "'The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor.'" And Gideon said to him, "'Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, "'then why has all this happened to us?' And where are all his wonderful deeds that our Father recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us to the hands of Midian. I want to say here? Notice how he talks to him. He, says, he calls him, oh, mighty man of valor. But who is this he's talking to? He's, he's hiding out in a wine press, doing this. Doesn't seem like this mighty man of valor. But this is common that God does this. He looks at people not as they are now, but he looks at the people that he is going to make them into. And that's how he looks at you and I as well. If you are a believer, he calls you a saint. He calls you, he calls you righteous. And you know, it's not just because as a believer you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ that is not your own. That is true. It's also because that's your, that's your destiny, that he is working in our lives with the good and bad that he brings into us to make us more like Christ, to make us more into the, to, to the, the image of God that he created us to be, to reflect Christ better. And so just the same way as he called uh, Abram and renamed Abram Abraham, which means father of multitude, while he still had no children at all, he's calling Gideon, a oh, mighty man of valor, while he still lacks very much courage. And the Lord said to him, Go in this mighty of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? So the Lord is sending him. And he, Gideon, said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So he calls him mighty man of valor, and uh, Gideon questions if he really knew what he was doing when he called him. But, you know, it is, it's impossible to predict who God is going to use. I mean, Gideon... You know, protested here. He said, "You who am I?" He said, "I am the." Uh, he's you no know, one special. He was he was a farmer. He wasn't a uh, special forces operative. You know, he was working uh, for his dad's you know field, beating out the beating out the wheat. He didn't have special training or education. He was not naturally courageous. He didn't have any special lineage. He said, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. He said he's uh, the least in his father's house. He's the youngest. You notice how often in Scripture God tends to pick the most unlikely one? Uh, Maybe the youngest or the one that seems the weakest? You know, it shows that it's, it's not ultimately our natural ability that does it. It's God. The God who calls us is going to give us what we need to do what he calls us to do. And there's times that you and I we're all going to feel inadequate about what we know God wants us to do. And yep, in ourselves we are. But God when he calls, he gives what is needed to fulfill that call. And he is in your life as well, and if that unexpected call comes to you, and it might it's probably not going to be an audible voice or an angel appearing to you, but when you realize there's something that you're supposed to be doing, God's going to give you what you need. He also comes from a family that we're going to see later. They they, they weren't pure as the driven snow as far as their worship. His dad had an altar to, to Baal in his backyard. And so they're a family of, of Baal worshipers. It's definitely impossible to know who God is going to use. So we're going to see here, he, verse 17, Gideon asks for a sign and the angel of the Lord gives him one. So uh, going on, verse 19, Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. It's about half a bushel, okay? So he was making quite a big meal to present. And remember, too, this isn't like you go to the store and buy this. You know, he has to thrash this out, and most of it gets taken by the Midians. So this is kind of a big deal to make this much uh, food. And he says, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the terebinth. Again, that's a type of tree, maybe an oak or an elm, something like that. And presented them and the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cake and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. Now, Gideon's looking for a sign here. He's making all this food. I don't quite know what the sign he was expecting. You know, like, if, okay, if you can eat this in less than a minute, then I will know this is a sign. But here's what happens. Uh, He did so, he put it on the rock and says, "Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So okay, you have some indication here that this is not just an ordinary person. He touches it, Fire comes out, burns this all up, and then the angel just vanishes. That was a, that was a lot of food to, to burn up. I think the only person that burned that much food since then is Rogine Sprague. So. You're going to get me for that, aren't you? I fully expect that. <laughs> so Gideon, he fully realizes this was the angel of the Lord. And, and he fears. That says, Gideon perceived that he, was in, that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, and I'm assuming it's a voice now because the angel had, had vanished visibly. He says, because he's afraid he's going to die. Because if you see the Lord face to face. And of course, he wasn't seeing directly the Lord face to face. It was a manifestation Um, but still people recognize that God is holy and we are sinners and to stand before a holy God but God gives him grace here and he says peace to you do not fear you shall not die then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace and to this day it stands at Ophirah which belongs to the Eberzites And then we have a last section here. God gives him a command that before he is going to bring them out of their misery, before they're going to do this conquest and fight back against the Midianites, he says, you guys have some unfinished business to take care of. There's this thing, you guys are worshiping false gods, and your, your dad has this altar to Baal in, in his backyard. By the way, sometimes in English we say Baal. I believe in, in Hebrew it would be Baal. Uh, now, it might come out sometimes, when I say it one way, it might come out the other. There's no rhyme or reason, it's just whatever comes out at the moment. But Baal is this, this evil, wicked, false god. And people thought that, uh, the Canaanites believed that uh, Baal and Asherah they controlled the weather. And these guys are farmers, so they're thinking, what's going to be good for our crops? We need the rain, so we better, we better worship Baal. And, you know, we'll still worship the Lord, but we can worship Baal on the side. You know, let's let's cover our bets as much as we can. And so it, his, uh, his father had this altar to Baal, this community altar in his backyard. And the Lord says, you've got to get rid of that. We, we can't be having this around. We need to take care of this first. I'll say many of us, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of people here and maybe some guys that have, you know, various different shrines in their house of one, Uh, type or another. I think there's some of you that probably have a you know a Michigan shrine somewhere or a Michigan State uh, shrine somewhere in their house. Is any people willing to to admit that? So I know there's some of you or you have your okay I see some hands going up. Uh, you know, or some of you have you know a hunting shrine or whatever it is and many of those aren't bad. Um, in our in our basement, I was fortunate my, my wife let me when we put in a bathroom in the basement, she let me make it into a Green Bay Packer bathroom. So I was surprised I got away with this. It has green and gold walls. Uh, it has, um, you know, just uh, different Packer decorations, uh, different places, towels, you know, Lambeau Field. It's, it's a thing of beauty. <laughs> it really is. I, thank you. I'm glad some people can appreciate it. Okay, the, the level-headed people. Okay, but at, at one point, re- some of them even gave us a, a yellow toilet. Now, my wife is downstairs in kids' blast, so she can't defend herself, but the the toilet supposedly fell off the truck (laughs) and broke. Now, I'm not accusing anyone, but she didn't seem all that heartbroken about the yellow toilet uh, uh, being broken. I think the only thing our bathroom is missing is some uh, Chicago Bears Kleenex that I could blow my nose into, Uh, so, so we don't have that. So we can all come together on that, can't we? Okay. So some of us may have you know, little shrines, and some of that's okay, all right? But a, sh- a shrine to Baal, you, just, you can't have that uh, in your backyard. And so it says here, the Lord said to him, verse 25, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take a second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid, we see this lack of courage in in Gideon, too afraid of his family because he knew he'd be going against his family here. And sometimes that is the toughest thing. And he was afraid of the men of the town going against your own community. He was too afraid of them to do it by day, so he did it by night. Now, thinking about this, too, I mean, the Bible does specifically say that it's because, because he was fearful. I think we have to realize, too, it probably would have been nearly impossible for him to try and get this done during the day and when everyone's watching But it does say that he had a he had a lack of courage. But you know what? He still did it. He still obeyed and got it done. And isn't that most times the the important thing? It's not how we feel about a courage to do this, it's if we actually do it. The courage that matters is not how we feel, but it's what we do. Courage is what you do, not how you feel. There's going to be a lot of things that God calls us to do that we're going to feel very afraid of. but It's a matter of depending on him and doing it despite our fear, def- despite our, our lack of courage. But with this, I think it tells us that we can't just add the altar of God to our lives without tearing down the altar to Baal. I mean, God is exclusive. He is not wanting us to, to share glory that we're supposed to give to him with false gods. We can't have our allegiance split between him and other things that we worship instead. I think too many times, Christians or people that claim to be Christians, we think we can do that. We We can add God to our list of things that we love and worship, but we can have all these other things that oftentimes are more important to us really than the Lord. But Instead, real repentance results in action. Not just regret, not just feeling bad, but real action in our life. A real turning away from these things that we realize God does not approve of. We need to repudiate our idols. Real repentance is more than just half-hearted good intentions. He may be scared, but he did it. Ask God to give you the strength, then do what you need to do. It doesn't work to say that you just want God to be your Savior, but you want Baal to be your Lord. He was afraid of this, and for good reason. The people in the morning were not thrilled by what they discovered. It says, verse 28, When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built... And they said to one another, who has done this thing? It's so like, what is going on? They come in the, in the, in the morning here because I guess, you know, they were pretty good about doing their devotions, okay, spending time with their Lord early in the morning. Uh, the, that is, would be a good thing if it was with the right Lord. But they were going to the wrong one to worship. I hope that we're spending time with God in, in, in prayer as soon as we can. You know, too, people will make whatever really is their Lord, they will make that a priority, And they will get to that pretty quick. And maybe a way that we can check and see what our idols in our life is, what do we get to quick? And what do we push off? So they get there and they're saying, who has done this? They're they're very mad about this. And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, his father, bring out your son that he may die. He had incurred the wrath of the people for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. So they were out for blood. They were, they were mad at him. And uh, Joash said to those who stood against him, and it was, he would have been upset. I mean, this was his bull, this was his altar, but uh, I think there was some quick thinking here. He said, will you contend for Baal? Will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, if Baal is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Hey, if Baal is truly a god, let him fight his own battles. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubabal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he has broken down his altar. Some additional lessons Tearing down your community's beloved altars will not be a popular thing. We just need to realize that going against the values in our society, our community, sometimes even our own family, this may not make you popular, to say the least. I mean, is that, is that a shock to you? But often that is what we're called to do to go against the things that everyone else loves and adores, and this is where their hope is, and this is where their love is. And that's why so many people are upset with Christians, because we are messing with the beloved altars of so much of society, and people can't stand that. We see that Gideon's father, uh, Joash, he has a change of heart. It's good to remember that our courage can and will have an effect on those around us. And it may make us very unpopular with many, but it can have an effect on some. And that should be a real encouragement to us, that we can, we can get the attention of some people. We can, through God's grace, uh, bring courage to them as well to do the right thing. I think an important point for this to realize is that baggage from your family does not need to dictate your future. A lot of us have all kinds of different backgrounds. And some here, you come from an outstanding family. I mean, we all come from sinners, that's true. No, nobody here has perfect parents or perfect lineage. And, and some, I mean, fantastic. And others, maybe you're coming out of something tough. Maybe God, uh, with you, you were the first to, to break a long cycle of all kinds of uh, dysfunctional behavior or addictions or just living a life apart from God, you know, maybe you're here and you're thinking, you know, Jesus Christ could never really be for me, because you don't know my background and where I come from. And I think too many people let that dictate their future. Now, if we're not aware of that, it's going to. Okay? We're going to just pick up the loves of our fathers. And sometimes if if our, our father or even our community, they were all about they're about business. That's going to be our idol. Or they're all about uh, conquest, either the business world or conquest in sports. Or people around us may pick up, they care, about, they care about beauty, they care about health, they care about physical pleasure. I mean, so many of the gods of the ancient world are still things that people serve today. I mean, these are the Canaanite gods, but later you have the Greek and Roman gods. You had you know, Aphrodite, the goddess of, of, of love, beauty, romance. Uh, sexual fulfillment. How, much, how many people in this world, they may not call it Aphrodite, but, but that's their highest thing. They're seeking after beauty. They're seeking after romance. And I'll tell you, this world today, you mess, you mess with somebody's idol of sexual fulfillment and whoa, they're coming after you. Or wisdom. Athena, the goddess of wisdom. How many people today just want to be intellectual. They want to be sophisticated. They want to come across as enlightened. But baggage from our family, God can make a change in our life. The chains can be broken. There can be a new start with you for your family. So we need to alter our altar. We each have altars. We need to ask, what's, what's the altar in your backyard? What's the altar of something that, that you might be holding up higher than God? That you and I, this is something we all have to think through, that we might be really serving, that we need to tear down, that we need to change. Let me say, many of us that we're concerned about, what we see in the world around us and our nation. And, and we should be, and we should be praying for that, and we should try to be a good influence. But oftentimes we have altars in our own backyard. Many Christians want to clean up society Let's let's start by cleaning up our own backyards. Ask God to give you the courage to repent. Fearful Gideon was now called Jerubabal, the man who fought against Baal and won. He had become a mighty man of valor. He still had imperfections. He still had fears. But what do we need to genuinely repent from? And maybe one thing that you need to repent from is just your your... Lack of trust in God. If you're not trusting Jesus Christ and you're trying to save yourself. And you need to realize, and I'm glad to tell you that that Jesus Christ, the same one that appeared here as the angel of the Lord, later on would come and, and take on a human genuine human body so that he could put himself on the altar as a sacrifice, on the cross. Because that's the mercy and grace that we need to be saved. Because there's there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Even with God giving us courage, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We needed a sinless Savior to do that in our place. And praise God that we have Jesus Christ. Yes, the book of Judges, flawed leaders, fallen world, faithful God. Let's pray. Lord God, we we thank you. Lord God, we give you praise. Lord, help us to see things in each of our lives that are altars that you do not appreciate, that we are worshiping by our, our lives, our actions, our affections, things other than you, and even some things that may be good things but have gotten out of place. And help us to genuinely repent of those things. Lord, I pray for anyone here that has not fully trusted you as their personal Savior. I pray that they would realize their desperate need and that turning away from their sin, they would put all of their trust in you, realizing that you did everything that's required to bring them to heaven by your perfect life and death and resurrection. We thank you that we have such a faithful and all-sufficient Savior. Help us to keep turning to you day by day. Give us hearts that genuinely do that and repent. We give you praise, our faithful God. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.